Tonight, imagine being fired for standing next to someone and smiling. That just happened to a soldier from the British Army. It's October 10, and you're watching The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. You come here once a year with a sign, and you feel morally superior. The only thing I have to say to the government for why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. How bad is deplatforming these days? You know what I mean? Leftists getting you kicked off of Facebook for having the wrong ideas, getting speakers banned from conferences, getting people fired from jobs, even riots like this one to stop a Republican speaker at University of California, Berkeley. Formerly the most free speech oriented place in the world, really now a place where they riot, deplatforming, taking away the platform. It happens all the time. It's the chief tactic of the left over the past few years. It's easier for them to scream at people or even punch people rather than to persuade people. That would require knowledge and facts and arguments. And actually, a big part of debating is listening when you think about it. And the left doesn't do that these days. And the screaming and the threats have a strategic effect, too. It not only damages the person it aims at right then and there, but it scares everyone else, either into submission or into actually joining with the mob. That's how it works when the media calls up conservative politicians to demand they disavow someone. It's really a way for the media to control politicians. We've seen that even here in Canada. When the state broadcaster asks conservatives about us here at The Rebel, it's not a real question. No one who watches the CBC cares about that. It's, it's the CBC's own way of saying, hey, Mr. Conservative politician, are you a real right-winger or are you a gentle CBC-friendly conservative? This is the litmus test. If you don't answer me right, we're going to call you racist. That's Wendy Mesley's signature move. It's Paul Wells's signature move. It, it worked on Andrew Scheer and Jason Kenney. It didn't work on Maxime Bernier. Remember this? Rebel media, for example, does seem to be fond of you. It's been accused, of course, of being supportive of white supremacist views. Ezra Levant, they have a million subscribers on YouTube, uh, mm. 150,000 followers on, on, uh, on Facebook. Do, do you want his support? Do you want his audience? That's deplatforming, isn't it? That's marginalizing. Well, here is a deplatforming story of the likes I have never seen before. And it regards our former UK reporter, Tommy Robinson. Tommy was just pulled over, he had just pulled over, he was, he was driving on the highway, and he just pulled over at a highway rest stop. You know, it's got the gas station and some fast food restaurants. Just pulled over at the same time as four busloads of young British soldiers did too. Now Tommy's a fairly known, you know, well-known figure in the UK now, and he loves the military. It's, it's actually what got him involved in activism in the first place. He saw British soldiers coming back from Afghanistan and they were being treated with gross disrespect by Muslim extremists in the UK. And even after Tommy started doing reporting for us, he loved the troops. Remember when we crowdfunded this high-tech wheelchair for a veteran who had been overlooked by the Ministry of Defense over there? And remember we helped this Navy vet, uh, Chris Ede was his name, get a proper pension. So Tommy loves the troops. That's what he does. He just does all these little projects. And the troops love Tommy in return. So this is how it went at the, at the truck stop on the highway in the United Kingdom. The most honourable morning I've ever had, anyway. <laughs> 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 oh, Tommy. <laughs> 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 
Class, eh? Uh, makes it all worth it. An honour. An honor. So no big deal, friendly selfies. No politics were discussed, really. This was just young lads. Junior soldiers, I don't know if that's the phrase. I, don't, I think they're more than cadets. They're just young soldiers. Probably, probably most of them in their late teens. So they, they wouldn't even probably even have a deep knowledge of Tommy's whole political career dating back a decade. I bet they know him more from our YouTube videos and from his Facebook page, something he's only really been doing in earnest for a couple of years. So Tommy's a citizen journalist who loves soldiers and stands for British values as opposed to Sharia values. That sounds good to me. It sounds good to those soldiers. Of course they want a selfie with him because Tommy's like them. He comes from a patriotic British working class background. Tommy stands up for the forgotten Britain, what in America would be called fly over country or the rust belt, you know, people who the British singer Morrissey would sadly call nobody's nothings in the eyes of the fancy people. So yeah, these working class Brits love the last vocal patriot in the British public square. And so as surely as day follows night, people who don't like Tommy Robinson and don't like the military and don't like working class Brits, well, they freaked out. But, but about what did they freak out? Did these troops say something political? Did they do something political? Did they endorse a candidate in an election? I mean, just brainstorming here. Did they, oh, I don't know, stand next to the flag of a banned terrorist group called Hezbollah and give an approving speech. No, no, that would be Jeremy Corbyn, the head of the Labour Party and possibly the next prime minister over there. Did these lads do that? Did these young soldiers do that? No, they did not. Did they themselves say anything, in fact, other than a few complimentary greetings and chanting his name briefly? They posted some of these photos to their own private Facebook pages. I'm sure a few of them were public Facebook pages, but did they do anything wrong? Did they even say anything wrong? Well, you bet they did. So says the Muslim imam for the British Armed Forces. There is such a thing, I'll have you know. And in fact, before any investigation of these men was even complete, they had been judged. I don't know, maybe that's how it works in Sharia law, because it was a Muslim imam issuing this edict, not some military panel or some court of law. Here's the Guardian newspaper. Imam Asim Hafiz, an Islamic religious advisor to the armed forces, said... Any form of racism, discrimination, or extremism is taken extremely seriously and will be dealt with accordingly. The armed forces remain absolutely committed to welcoming individuals from across all faiths and cultures to its ranks. Did you know that the British Army had a Muslim religious advisor? Now you know. And apparently he has the power. I don't know, did he? Was he the one who kicked out recruits for standing next to someone at a truck stop? Oh, and for the racism, discrimination, and extremism, can, can you please tell me, or could the Guardian, or could Imam Hafiz, what discrimination did those soldiers do there? What extremism did they do there? What racism did they do there? By the way, as I think I've told you, when I first met Tommy in person a couple years ago, he was accompanied by his best friend since childhood, who just happens to be a black man. Tommy is constantly working with Sikhs in Britain who are also concerned about similar issues. So I'm not sure where their racism is. I think Tommy has more visible minority friends than any white liberal at The Guardian, but that never stopped The Guardian's insults before. Look, this wasn't the rule of law. This wasn't the rule of court, even a military court. This wasn't an actual offense or an actual problem. This was a political complaint, a deplatforming, 
In fact, look at the next sentence in that same Guardian story. They say, the Muslim Council of Britain said Robinson, quote, does not represent our armed forces, however much he tries to claim otherwise. He will rile against the very real steps taken to make the military more diverse, a spokesman added. He will remain silent on the sacrifices Muslims and others made in the two world wars. We welcome the swift statement by the army in disassociating itself from the far right, and we hope that safeguards are put into place to ensure that Islamophobia will have no place in our armed forces. Now, I've watched a lot of Tommy's videos over the last year and a half. I don't think I've ever seen him claim to represent the army at all, ever. In fact, he's pretty careful about that. He said he was honored to meet those young troops, and um, the Muslim Council, they didn't talk about Islam, they didn't talk about Muslims. The Muslim Council of the UK did, but by mentioning what Muslim soldiers in the two world wars did, that's interesting, but it's maybe not something the Muslim Council wants to raise. Here's a story in Germany's Deutsche Welle called How Nazis Courted the Islamic World During World War II. Tens of thousands of Muslims fought for the Nazis in World War II. Deutsche Welle spoke with historian David Motadel about whether pragmatism or anti-Semitism drove Adolf Hitler's overtures and why some Muslim leaders backed him. Yeah, I don't think the Muslim Council wants to talk about that. You know the Palestinians back then? Well, there was something called the Palestine Brigade, but those were the Jews living in Palestine in the Holy Land. They went to fight with the British against Hitler. But nice distraction there, Muslim Council. But back to Tommy, what did he do wrong at the truck stop? What did the soldiers do wrong at the truck stop? Well, nothing. They can't really deplatform Tommy any more than they have done. I mean, he was sent to prison for 13 months for doing a video outside of court. Not sure what you can do on top of that. But the young lads who took their photos with Tommy, who dared to say, hi, well, they were immediately investigated. Their own personal cell phones were seized by their commanding officers, and they were told to unlock them, and they were searched for any traces of pro-Tommy sentiment, even in private messages, as in saying you like the guy in private on your own Facebook page or maybe in a text to a friend. Apparently, that is the new test for being a racist. If you told your friend that you met Tommy Robinson at a truck stop, or even if you don't really know who Tommy Robinson is, but you maybe heard his name, maybe, and maybe you've seen a video of him, and look, everyone else in your group is posing for a selfie with him, and you thought you'd do so too because you're a cohesive group of lads. Well, obviously, you're engaging in Islamophobic discrimination. And, and you know the Muslim Council of the UK is a good group of guys with really sound judgment that the people in the British Army should totally listen to. I mean, until just a few years ago, the Muslim Council of the UK literally boycotted Holocaust Memorial Day. They were against it. Now, I don't know if they simply deny that the Holocaust happened or, frankly, if they supported the Holocaust, but they boycotted Holocaust Memorial Day. Here's the same Guardian newspaper that's so concerned about selfies with Tommy. They actually ran an op-ed. When the Muslim Council finally changed its mind and said, all right, fine, well, I admit the Holocaust existed. The Guardian actually wrote, published this op-ed saying that the Muslim Council had gone soft. So that's the Guardian newspaper. That's one of the media outlets judging Tommy and these soldiers. Let me show you that this isn't a conspiracy theory. I'm not, I'm not drawing lines or seeing ghosts where there are none. The British Army really is under the direction of imams and pressure groups. Look at this tweet. 
Now, I saw this tweet myself when it was posted, but it was soon deleted. It's from the official British Army account. And let me read it to you. It says, the British Army is pr proud to be diverse and inclusive. Today, 7th Infantry Brigade, based in the West Midlands, is hosting a retreat for Muslim imams at Amport House, the home of Army Chaplaincy. The group is studying the role of Muslim chaplaincy in the Army. And I'm not sure if you can make it out at the bottom, but there is a photo of about a dozen Muslim imams. Did you know that's going on? <laughs> Do you doubt it's going on here in Canada, too? Well, now you know it's gone going on in the British uh, Army, but I love that line, proud to be diverse and inclusive. Yeah, there weren't any women in that picture, if you didn't notice, because that kind of diversity ain't allowed. They're not so friendly to gays either. But really, as usual, when leftists say they're inclusive and diverse, they just, they just don't mean inclusive and diverse to other points of view, such as, I don't know, towards Tommy Robinson's style of patriotism or British values. That's not included in their inclusion. Liberals always claim to be so open-minded to other points of view, but then they are shocked when other people actually have other points of view. These Muslim imams are welcome, but the other point of view, well, put it this way, a Facebook picture of Tommy Robinson is now enough to get you fired from your career. Now, do you think any soldier would be fired for posing in a selfie with a Muslim imam who has a reactionary point of view? Who's actually extreme and discriminatory, to use the words of the army imam? Well, look at this. Here's a picture of a few British police, not soldiers, I grant you, but police, giving a salute with a Muslim man who has taught them a friendly hand gesture, raising the index finger. That's so friendly. It's not like our middle finger, which is a bad symbol. This just means one. It's the, oh, it's the symbol of Muslim extremism. It's an ISIS salute. It's a, it's a symbol of unity. It's a repudiation of Christianity's concept of the Trinity of God. It's what Muslim terrorists show other fundamentalists. They go like this. That's the symbol. Pretty sure those cops weren't fired. I bet, in fact, they got some attaboys from the chief. And I, I think it's probably true that they didn't even know what they were doing when they went like this. But you see the tilt here. Look at how far it's tilted. I'm about to show you a re recruiting video from the British Army. I'm going to show the whole thing. It's only 40 seconds. Take a look. Pichadni moki muslati, menzeriati. Ubananda kovolwa, ubanafeli vale vale tiyau. Salamu alaikum warahmatullahi. That's a real ad for the British Army. Imagine that, you're out on patrol in Afghanistan. I don't know where those mountains were, probably not Afghanistan. Um, but your whole squad will now stop to accommodate five prayers a day. And you can take your boots off, you can take your helmet off. And you saw that other guy mute the radio call, shh, tell the general. He's got to wait. It's prayer time. Look, there's, there's an important Muslim prayer that takes precedence. Whatever the general wants, he'll have to wait. That is a real ad. That is not satire. So that's permitted in the British Army. I wonder if Taliban terrorists would stop shooting at the Brits while a British Muslim soldier stopped the patrol to pray. 
Look, I get it. This is the story in the Times of London a couple years back. It's the most prestigious newspaper in the United Kingdom. The headline, hundreds more UK Muslims choose jihad than army. Let me read a few of the first lines. More than twice as many British Muslims have traveled to Syria and Iraq to wage jihad than have joined the British military over the past three years. The difference could be even greater after it was claimed last night that the number of Britons who to have fought with the Islamic State, ISIS, and other extremist groups in the region was much higher than the 400 to 500 identified by police. One member of parliament said that more than 1,500 British militants had joined the fight to create a caliphate, while a leading figure in the Muslim community put the figure between 600 and 1,000. About 560 Muslims serve in the British army. So yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. I'm not sure if that recruitment ad, though, is going to help, or the Muslim imams, or kicking out indigenous white Brits who happen to love the Queen, but that's just what happened. Look at this story today in Sky News. Soldier in Tommy Robinson video to be discharged from army. I'll read some more. Sky News is told the recruit had a long record of disciplinary problems, and this was the last straw that broke the camel's back. Well, what a racist analogy. Hang on. Hang on. Who leaked that soldier's personnel file? Why was that leaked before the, even, before the he hearing even happened? Is the British media at all concerned about the invasion of political privacy and personal freedom? Having every soldier have their phones searched? Do they really support firing soldiers because they stand next to someone at a truck stop and smile? Well, of course, if the person involved is Tommy Robinson. Same way they didn't care that a Brit was sentenced to 13 years in prison for reporting outside of court. First time a reporter's been sentenced to prison in the UK for contempt since the 1940s. Look, the, the British media don't care because they love the transformation of the British Army into something unrecognizable. I don't think they really like the new British Army, but they hate the old British Army. Male, strong, British, patriotic, killed things. The Army is the last redoubt of patriots and people who just plain love the United Kingdom want to Fight for it. Not a lot of them left, but there are a few. They're mainly in the armed forces. So the armed forces must be destroyed, just like liberals in America, just to pull a random example. They love what's going on in the NFL at the hands of Black Lives Matter. Liberals don't actually watch football. They don't really care. They just want to destroy a symbol of patriotism and masculinity. Well, the British armed forces are the last best thing about the UK, aren't they? They actually kill Taliban terrorists. They're so rude that way. This story's getting bigger, not smaller. Last night, Tommy set up a petition with us at standwithourlads.com. Standwithourlads.com. In 24 hours, more than 100,000 people have signed that petition. That is amazing. We've been doing petitions here at The Rebel for three and a half years, and we have never done one that has got so many signatures so quickly. I think this shows the importance of the military and the outrage over this extreme politically correct meddling by the Muslim Council. But it's just as important for the military brass too that this happen, that Tommy be crushed and any Tommy sympathizers be crushed. I hope to be able to show you evidence as soon as tomorrow that the Minister of Defense himself has been directly involved in the purge of these young troops. The minister has taken a personal interest. I have proof. I need permission to show it. I hope to show you tomorrow.
That's how seriously they want to stomp out patriotism and national pride and any resistance to the Islamification of the armed forces. We'll see who wins this showdown. The 100,000 petition signers and Tommy, or the brass. I love Tommy, I love Great Britain, but I've seen enough over my travels there in the last two years to know how this is going to end. They will literally kick out dozens, hundreds, even thousands of British soldiers in the name of political correctness. They will kick them all out if necessary. Just you watch. Stay with us for more. Like I said, I've learned my lesson. In four years, I've learned a lot of things. I mean, if I was going back home to do something like that, I wouldn't have contacted the government for help. I would have tried to snuck in. Like I said, I just want to go back home with my family and kids and just forget about this whole thing, man, if it's possible. It's four years, I mean, uh, pretty much taking everything out of me. Most of the time I was doing, doing recon, even with the sniping units, I was a spotter. I mean, we didn't take much shots or things like that because the nature of war here, I mean, it's, uh, distances are very far. And even when we shot, I mean, we never went up looking around, trying to see if we killed someone or confirm if we had killed someone. That is an ISIS terrorist from Canada. His name is Mohammed Ali, and he's actually, he was caught trying to sneak out of the Islamic State and make his way back to Canada when he was captured by Kurdish forces who were holding him. He's out there doing terrorism with his wife and kids, and he wants to come back to Canada. And you heard the man. He's learned his lesson, folks, and he's just tired. He's ready to come home. And as Justin Trudeau said, as a Canadian is a Canadian, he'll surely be brought back. Or will he? Muhammad Ali says he has not yet spoken on the phone or be contacted by any of Trudeau's diplomats. Joining us now to talk about the possible scenarios that could play out here is our friend Lee Humphrey, the founder of Veterans for the Conservative Party of Canada and president of James International Security Consulting. Ali, great to have you here. Thanks very much. Uh, what do you make of the case of Muhammad Ali. Well, you know, the first thing that pops into my head when I hear that clip, Ezra, is uh, how disgusting it is that, that he thinks he's a victim in any way, shape, or form. He purposefully chose to leave Canada in 2014, in April of 2014. He went to work in northern Alberta after leaving school to raise money so he could travel abroad. He told his father about it. His father took him to an imam uh, to try and talk him out of it, and he wasn't to be dissuaded. He was he was going to go. And now suddenly, you know, we're to feel he's the victim? Uh, I don't think so. You know, I'm reminded of Omar Khadr when he was captured. The Taliban and al-Qaeda, and of course ISIS is an offshoot of al-Qaeda, uh, train their terrorists that when they're captured, there's certain things they should say or do to press the emotional or legal buttons in the West. One of the things they always say is that they were tortured, whether or not it's true, because they know 
that that will you know, cause all sorts of legal machinery to come to their aid, and it'll also be a PR war. I don't believe that a man who's willing to murder you isn't also willing to lie to you. Lee, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't believe a word he's saying, and I think he's doing a practiced beg or lie or taquia, as they might say, uh, because he'd rather be in Canada than in a Kurdish prison. Yeah, absolutely. He'll, he'll say whatever he needs to say and uh, appear to be the innocent victim of all of this and that he was only a spotter and not a shooter, as if that makes a difference, um, so that he can come home and, and, as he says, forget about this. But there is no forgetting about committing terrorism on, on a genocidal scale uh, against, uh, you know, both Iraq and Syria and, and trying to attempt, take over the, the Sahel region. Um, or the Al-Sham region, sorry. Uh, you know, it, it's time, I think, Canada really decided whether we want to enforce our terrorism laws or whether we want to keep playing the silly game of sticking our head in the sand, bringing folks home, and following this mantra that will simply deny that terrorism could be carried out by young Canadians abroad, yeah. let alone at home. You know, the... Uh, attack against terrorism through the courts, prosecuting, lawyering beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond a balance of uh, probability. These are not, le the legal process is not properly suited to war. There's, there's no meticulous gathering of evidence. There's no untampered evidence. It's, there's, you know, there's no witnesses. There's a, it, prosecuting someone for what they do overseas is not the best way to do it. Our criminal code has provisions that allow us to prosecute someone simply for going over there to avoid the evidentiary and procedural hassles. I mean, imagine trying to get a witness, um, a, you know, a transient terrorist or soldier in the field. It makes no sense. We could prosecute them simply for going over there and providing support and uh, moral support and tangible support to ISIS right there. That is a criminal act under our criminal code, isn't it? Absolutely, and that is the number one reason why that uh, piece of the law was put into place, because it was very clear that it's, it is difficult to gather evidence uh, in a war zone. Uh, it is very difficult to have that meet the burden of proof standards uh, uh, in the Canadian justice system. So. It, what is very clear in almost every one of these terrorist cases is that these folks either went and fought with these uh, with with ISIL, or they attempted to. So that is the relevant piece of the legal or the law that should be applied and and could be easily applied. And it's exactly what our allies use. Uh, for their domestic uh, uh, terrorists that, that travel abroad and, and then attempt to come home. Mm -hmm. um, have any Canadians who have gone overseas to fight with ISIS or ISIL, depending on how you say it, have any of them been charged? We know that dozens, maybe even scores, have returned to Canada. Has there been any prosecution or even any arrests that we know about? None that I'm aware of. I, I know that uh, most of these folks have been interviewed upon arrival. Um, they've been interrogated for a short period of time. They've been warned that they will be followed or tracked. 
but there's been no charges, no arrests, no attempted charges that have, have gone to court and failed. So, you know, it appears that the government is incredibly reluctant to even go down this path uh, under under the uh, under the administration of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Yeah. Um, you know, it was interestingly enough, a foreign journalist, Rukmini Kalamaki is her name, with the New York Times, who interviewed an ISIS terrorist who came back to Canada, interviewed him at, at some length, and he was boasting in the New York Times um, of being a murderer overseas and being an enforcer. Um, so, I mean, you have these, these folks aren't hiding it. I mean, this fella here is probably lying about the fact that he, quote, was only a sniper spotter. As you point out, it doesn't matter. He helped kill how many innocents. It, he's probably lying about what other things he did personally. He's probably lying about his remorse. But he, he doesn't have to lie because there are other terrorist returnees in Canada who shouted out, who boast about it. There was a Yazidi woman who said she saw her ISIS rapist on a public bus in Ontario. These folks don't even need to hide because no one's chasing them, am I right? Uh, that, that's the problem. I mean, we have countless uh, social media postings by these folks boasting of their achievements while in country. It is not beyond the, the ability of the Canadian government to determine that those social media posts are, were, were actually posted where they say they were posted from. And the, these people are boasting of their achievements. This gentleman, he did say that he was mostly a spotter, but he did take some shots. Mm. He said he was sick of killing after four years. You know, th this is exhibit one of a confession. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I can think of that Canadian authorities may not have interviewed him at this point or haven't interviewed him at this point is they're afraid of the um, of the potential lawsuit because the Americans and the British have interrogated him and they you know they're looking at the Omar Cotter case and saying oh my god if we send Canadians in to interview this guy while he's in the custody of somebody else we'll have another human rights violation on our hands and, and be forking out 10.5 million again. Yeah, you know, I think you're absolutely right because it wasn't just Cotter, two or three other uh, uh, accused terrorists were awarded about 10 million bucks each. And I see that there was another terrorist suing the Canadian government for tens yes. of millions with very little connection to Canada. I think you're so right about that. Uh, let me ask you a, a question about Guantanamo Bay because I, um, you know, George W. Bush created Guantanamo Bay to hold detainees who were not prisoners of war under the definition of the, um, of the Geneva Conventions. I've read those conventions several times, and it's clear you have to meet certain standards to be given the rights of a soldier. I mean, for example, when we ca captured tens of thousands of German soldiers in the Second World War, we didn't prosecute them. And we didn't put them in a regular prison because they hadn't done anything, quote, wrong by just being regular soldiers. We just put them in prisoner war camps till, till the war was done. But they had to wear a uniform, be part of a chain of command, bear their weapons openly, not sneakily like a terrorist. And they had to generally follow, follow the laws and customs of war. So if you were just some, you know, 18-year-old conscript in the Wehrmacht, you weren't going to be prosecuted for a war crime. You'd just be held until the war was over. You couldn't leave. 
That's sort of what Guantanamo Bay was, a POW camp, but for, for terrorists who didn't rise to the level of an actual soldier. Do we need some sort of an indefinite detention, like POW camps were, like Guantanamo Bay is, do we need some sort of Canadian place where we put these terrorists until, as we did with the Wehrmacht soldiers in World War II, until the war is over? It's an interesting question, and, and that's exactly what Guantanamo was created for. And in fact, the U.S. took an additional step whereby they gave those prisoners not the status of PW or prisoner of war, but they gave them the rights inherent to prisoners of war in terms of the quality of health care, they got recreational facilities, et cetera. And, and so it allowed the United States time to hold people either until the war was over and, or until those people were no longer threats, or they could be transferred to their host nations and dealt with safely there. Obviously, the, there was some recidivism uh, back to the battlefield, uh, but for the most part, it worked well. Whether Canada needs to do that or, or whether the, the international uh, you know, Western group of countries need to come together and create a facility similar to perhaps what we had in, in Berlin, um, where you know, at, at one point it was only holding one Nazi prisoner until he, until he passed away. But some form of an international prison where you can maintain the rights and the standards that Western nations expect their prisoners to be held in for the duration of a war or until their cases can be adjudicated properly and they're deemed not to be threats. The, the alternative to that is we've seen the United Kingdom withdraw the citizenship of at least nine ISIS terrorists that are being held by the SDF in, in, uh, in the Kurdish region. Canada could do the same specifically with this gentleman and his wife, although the complicating factor in this case would be the children uh, who were born to two Canadian citizens, although they're citizens by residency, not by birth, uh, but it becomes a complicating factor for sure. Uh, but the terrorist himself, they could certainly withdraw his citizenship and many of the others. Those born in Canada, like Cotter, would have to be repatriated at some point um, once either the war was done or they had completed their sentence, as in the case of Cotter. So, you know, the short answer is, I don't know if Canada could afford to do something like that on its own for such a small number, but in conjunction with our allies like the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Italy, uh, the United States, other countries that have larger numbers, perhaps this is a good solution. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't want to try and be a legislator. I, I just don't know enough about the laws of war. But the one thing that I found very interesting when I learned about prison of war camps is it was not a penitentiary. These people were not being punished. They were just being kept. Because if they were yeah. to let go, it was assumed they would rejoin the army and keep fighting. So this was just a way to get them off the field of battle till Germany was no longer our enemy and then they could go home. Some of them actually stayed here. I think that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban will fight the West forever. I, I don't think that's something that they would accept a surrender. It's not in the, the ideological nature of Islamic extremism. So if these folks would remain in detention forever, 
that's a price that I think they should pay. And again, we're not punishing them as a murderer because we haven't convicted them of that. We're just holding them. I don't want that guy, Muhammad Ali, wandering around schools. I don't want them wandering by synagogues or churches or daycares. Or I don't want them, I don't want them collaborating with other radicals. I just, I, let me ask you one last, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of meandering and daydreaming about things that we could do. I think maybe that doesn't make me much different from Trudeau and Ralph Goodale. They clearly don't know what to do or, or, or want to do anything either, do they? Well, they seem to be inserting a, a political piece to this in the sense that there's an election coming. They recognized when they made that payment to Omar Khadr that there were, the backlash was far greater than they ever anticipated, that with each terrorist attack in Canada, that they attempt to deny that, that Canadians can see through this and they, they see it through uh, Trudeau and Goodell are seeing it through a political lens and how it could damage them in the next election or how it could benefit the Conservative Party, which is much tougher on these issues. So you're not getting an accurate uh, assessment by the security services to the minister of public safety who then moves forward. You know, there, there's the Gerald Butts lens that it's all going through uh, before uh, any actions are taken. And this should be, you know, like many things, like veterans issues, like military issues, like procurement for military, this should be a nonpartisan issue. This is about the safety of Canadians. You mentioned a Yazidi woman being terrorized again at home. Mm -hmm. We can't let that happen to our citizens mm -hmm. who, through no fault of their own, have to live in fear because terrorists who were weary on the battlefield may regain their strength, their composure, and rediscover their ideology when they're back here at home. Yeah. Well, I am, I am scared about it. I, and as I said about Omar Khadr, I'm less scared that he will actually murder someone again because he's much more powerful than just a piece of cannon fodder as he was a dozen years ago. Now he's a propagandist, an organizer, an inspirer, a connector. He has his father's name, and most importantly, he's the guy who beat Guantanamo Bay. He's the guy who beat the rap and is walking free with 10.5 million in his genes. The very fact that he struts around free is much more inspiring and terrifying um, to, to young Muslim radicals who would be contemplating that life than if he would just throw a grenade at a Jewish school bus. I think bringing these, these uh, terrorists home and giving them money is actually more dangerous than the murders they would cause. Last word to you, Lee. Yeah, absolutely. These guys are rock stars. Uh, they have fought for the A-team and they have survived and they are now coming home and they will be welcomed with open arms in certain mosques by certain groups of people and they will be listened to and idolized over and over and over again about how they went and, you know, committed jihad in the name of, of Muhammad. And, uh, and we have a duty to, to our fellow citizens to make sure that these guys cannot be used for propaganda purposes to motivate others to commit acts of terror, whether it's here, whether it's in Europe, or whether it's against the Canadian Armed Forces in Iraq or in Mali for that matter. Yeah. Well, this is terrifying. I have to tell you, I'm a pessimist on this, Lee. I believe that this Muhammad Ali will come back to Canada. I believe he will be made a millionaire, and I believe he will be put on an honored 
speaking circuit, and I think all of those things will happen if Justin Trudeau is, re Trudeau is reelected. So I think that's, that's just how it is. I, I'm sorry I could keep going on this for a while, but it would just be me ranting. Lee, great to see you. Thanks for fighting the good fight, as you always did. You fought the fight in the battlefield, and now you're fighting the fight in the court of a public opinion. Thank you for that. Thank you, Ezra, and you're spot on in your assessment. All right. There you have it. That's Lee Humphrey. And by the way, he'll be one of our speakers at the Rebel Live in Calgary on Saturday, November 10th. We've also invited a range of other speakers from Lindsay Shepard, the free speech uh, activist. We've invited Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Federal Conservative Party, and Jason Kenney, the leader of the United Conservative Party provincially. We've also invited Maxime Bernier federally, and he has RSVP'd. We'll keep you posted on that. For more details, go to therebellive.com. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Welcome back on my monologue yesterday about leftist violence in lawless liberal America. Peter writes, the Antifa violent types want to tear down our society. They depend upon our cultural civility to enact their violence. Well, that's, there's some truth there. I think they, they are like babies and they're looking for limits. I mean, you know how babies are, and even kids, and I suppose grown-ups too. They want to know what the limit is, and so they keep pushing and pushing to see what they get away with. I think they like speaking ill against the man and defying authority. But I think it's also, and I think I mentioned this yesterday, that happened in Portland. It wouldn't happen in Dallas, Texas, because conservatives are generally a little bit more physical and tough and gun-owning and gun-shooting. So I think that's what happens when everyone says this is going to be a peaceful, harmonious place, but one group of people says, well, we're not. Uh, unfortunately, that makes other people toughen up too. I don't want a civil war in America. It will be brutal. But these lefty, vegan, antifa types would be crushed by the good old boys. It's just a fact. Alberta Maga writes, funny how these clowns love the courts when they are full of liberal judges. Now, I'm not sure. Oh, you're talking about, you're talking about Brett Kavanaugh. Well, absolutely, yeah. Um, one thing I like about the United States that I wish we had here in Canada is they have a healthy disrespect for the court. Now, they respect the court. We talked yesterday about the gorgeous 13-ton bronze doors, and I encourage you to look that up. It's a very interesting piece of history and philosophy. Those doors are very symbolic. We ought to respect the courts, and in a way, we have to love the courts but we should disrespect the people in it just enough. And what I mean by that is they are not high priests, they're not wizards, they're not morally superior to you or I. They are people entrusted with powers, occupying a high office, but they themselves are not gods. And we know this because we put them through a grinding, grilling nomination and confirmation in the United States, but we don't do that in Canada, do we? In Canada, you're basically told by the prime minister who the judge is. You're told. They have a symbolic Q&A, gentle Q&A session for about an hour in Parliament. No one asks anything tough. There's no time for background checks. No one would dare bring allegations as were brought against Brett Kavanaugh. It's all a, an inside job in Canada. And when the Supreme Court in Canada issues a ruling, 
of extreme social importance. Uh, for example, saying uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is not going to go ahead because the hundreds of days of consultation with Aboriginal people, it needed to be 200 days or whatever. Oh, well, the Supreme Court said so, so there's no... I mean, you saw that the other day when Premier Doug Ford used the notwithstanding clause to uh, shake away a radical judge. Oh, how dare you? Those judges are saints. No, they're not. That's what I mean. I think we ought to respect any person as we would respect any person. We definitely ought to respect the office of the courts and the law itself. But I think the, pol the, po the people who occupy those offices, especially the more political they get, they deserve the same reaction from us that we give to other branches of the government, like our elected politicians. On my interview with David Menzies, Marty writes, David said in the interview that he would have liked to have seen a person with a patriotic view and denounced Sharia law. David, I have news for you. There is no patriotism left in our Canada. Well, I think that's wrong. I know there is patriotism. I see it gently sometimes, whether it's just a Canadian flag. I, I see it deeply sometimes. Um, visit a Legion Hall, you'll see it. But I think you're right. It's being chased out of the public arena. I mean, for God's sakes, we just stripped a statue of John A. Macdonald down from the City Hall in Victoria, and Justin Trudeau just took John A. Macdonald off your $10 bill, and I didn't hear a squawk anywhere. To be candid, we didn't even squawk about it. Dan writes, please stop doing such wonderful things with my donation money that make me very happy. At some point, I'd like to blow it on a case of beer or some magic beans instead of your plethora of worthy causes. Yes, this is satire. Thanks so much for putting Rebel supporters' donation money to such good use. Well, thanks very much, Dan, and I think you might be talking about the truck that David did, that Linda Sarsour truck. Who knows? We do different projects all the time. Uh, some of them are tiny, some of them are big, some of them fail, let's be honest. Some of them don't work. We've probably done 100 projects in the three and a half years we've been around here. I'd say that's about right, one every 10 days. Um, we're, we're trying to do some in the UK, and we even did some in Australia way back. We did one or two in America. Uh, it, we, you know, journalist advocacy, advocacy journalism, a little bit of troublemaking, a little bit of mucking things up. This petition that Tommy's doing with us, standwithourlabs.com, 100,000 people signed that in 24 hours. That tells me that we're meeting a demand. People can't get that action anywhere else, certainly not from the state broadcaster, either the CBC here or the BBC there. So thank you for your kind words and thank you for chipping into our projects. Hopefully you have found them meaningful and it sounds like you, you have. That's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, see you at home. Good night, and keep fighting for freedom.